In this episode today, I want you to think about one word, and that word's attention. My belief is attention is the oxygen of almost all human endeavor. It's your only path forward if you want to teach, mentor, lead, market, sell, collaborate, convince, contribute, get that promotion you deserve, or raise the capital you need to start a business. The challenge is most ideas, brands, and even resumes are starving for attention. You might have a revelation, the next big thing. You might have a PowerPoint that dances with animation, or you've uncovered an insight that turns into a great ad, but it's not getting adequately heard. Why is that? Two reasons. We live in the age of noise, too much and too many chasing a finite amount of time. We're drinking content from a fire hose. And no matter what we put in that fire hose, I would argue most of it's been spilled on the floor. And the second is digital mouse. I'm shocked when I go to a restaurant and see people it looks like their first date or families watching TV or people together. And what's in front of them is their screen. They're connected to a, a world that's within arm's reach of desire, not necessarily people within arm's reach. So attention is the oxygen of human endeavor. It's essential that we find a way to get it. And my guest today is someone who makes his living getting his clients the attention they deserve. Here in the advertising world, he needs no introduction. His name is Israel Diaz. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. And this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Israel's a renaissance man. You'll learn about it. He's a chess player, self-taught, university school creative director. He's insightful, talent developer, strategic thinker, philosopher, mentor, meditator, reinventor. And he's here to help you get the attention you deserve. Israel, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thanks, Tony. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. I gave you a pretty lofty introduction, uh, so we're going to have to uh, see just how well you hold up to it. Oh, man. What's the best way to describe you to people outside your marketing and strategy world? Or I'll even give you a better example. When my mom died, she thought I was a photographer because I was in the business of content, even though I really don't know how a camera works. How would you describe what you do to someone that knows no idea about what you do? Oh, that's hilarious because I, I think everyone in advertising has the same problem trying to explain what they did or do with to their parents. Um, how I kind of like to think about myself right now is it's a little bit of um, kind of like a creativity hacker. I didn't say creative hack and maybe some people think <laughs> of me as that. <laughs> but uh, creativity hacker only because now I, when I kind of look back, what I've always liked to do is try to find ways to improve the creative process and in terms of, you know, uh, getting the best creative out. So looking for ways, hacking the system, looking for processes that will actually get to the best end result. So now I'm just kind of playing in the field of science, philosophy, business, and kind of the art and, and, and science of bringing that all together in order for people to actually create something. So I started this show talking about how attention is the oxygen of most human endeavor and how hard it is to get the attention you deserve. Do you agree with that or am I just overinflating the situation? Honestly, it was just, it's overwhelming how much content there is that I almost get paralyzed now. So you always kind of just re re revert back to, you know, kind of the known a little bit. However, I, I wanted to actually just reframe this, uh, this idea of attention, uh, if I could, only because I've actually been doing a lot of thinking about it. And it's, it's funny because it was just so coincidental when you, when you wanted to talk about attention for this, uh, for this program. And I'm like, 
that's amazing because I've been doing a lot of thinking about it. And it ties back to some science, actually. I think it might help reframe how we think about attention because attention right now, we can think about it as simply being noticed in the traditional sense and, you know, being heard, being noticed, being, you know, like doing your thing so that people will actually, you, you'll attract people to your product or service. But when you think about it, attention is really um, an equivalent or a, it's synonym for awareness, right? Um, and awareness is just a synonym for consciousness. So when we ask for people to pay attention, we're asking them to actually give us part of their consciousness and kind of their, you know, thinking, their, their mind at, at the time. And that's a huge thing because honestly, like consciousness is really what we have. And that's the thing that, you know, when you talk about quantum physics, that's the thing that holds everything together. And therefore it's probably the most important and valuable thing we can ask of anyone. Where I grew up, it was about five words. He who shouts loudest wins. And if you get out, shout your competition on television or in the store shelves, you invariably got a bigger market share, assuming your product was of equal uh, merit. But you're saying this is a little bit different. Shouting loud and just interrupting or corralling people because they happen to be watching a TV show and you throw your ad out is really not what attention is all about. You're saying it's a much deeper connection. It's a much deeper connection. And because there's just a proliferation of so much noise out there, it's like we're walking into a, um, a market. You know, when you walk into a foreign market and you just hear all this kerfuffle and there's noise and someone's selling goats here and someone's selling, you know, like some some sort of bread and everyone's shouting and it's just this cacophony and i feel like that's kind of the world we're in and so shouting louder doesn't really amount to anything because that just means you have to spend more money to actually just shout louder and and be heard more right and so the the value in actually switching your perspective or our perspective on on attention is and we have to listen to the words we use like it's we, we say um pay attention so when we actually ask people to pay attention, that means we're actually asking them to actually invest in something in us. But we have to return something in value, right? It has to be of value to them. In order to actually get people to pay attention, we have to give attention. So when we give, we get. How we give attention is actually going to impact the attention we get back. So that means just going deeper into really understanding who our audience is, who are we trying to get people to uh, look at what we do or our, our product and service, listening to their needs, understanding what they're about, going deeper in terms of what value can we give people so that they would actually feel like they're invested in whatever we have to say. Provide some advice either from a small business owner up to big business, because this, you're talking about a much deeper understanding the consumer, the quest they're on, the things that matter most of them. But in today's world, it seems to be just faster. Try to cut costs, try to get things out the door instead of, you know, one campaign, a thousand spitballs of social media come out. How do you encourage people to take the time and first really focus on what matters most to the people that matter most to them? It's actually really understanding what is it you're really trying to sell first and foremost. It's actually paying attention to what you're saying. So it's actually a, a bit of a, a switch in terms of understanding for yourself, paying attention to what you have to offer. What is it about what you are actually offering out that is going to be of value? Taking that step ties back to personal purpose. That ties into your passions and, and your pursuit is really just an extension 
is, is just another word for business, your busyness, right? So how you're actually going out into the market um, is just a reflection of what are you passionate about? What is, what, what is your real purpose for doing this? If people understand why you're doing what you're doing, like you can be really efficient with the communication. We've heard this uh, numerous times too. It's like if you start with why, people can un- really understand, you know, the buyer why versus kind of buyer product. Because again, there's a million types of similar in the same. How important is it that people find, you know, as you said, the why that instead of just a product they're selling or a profit that they're chasing, that there is a higher purpose? Do you think that the difference between people that are checking in and checking out of this world are the ones that that are attached to something that has a greater purpose? We just have so much choice out there in terms of where we could invest our money, put our attention, give our time to, that people are just being choosy. <laughs> and, and to actually gravitate to the people, the brands, the businesses that really resonate with them. And I think we've seen that in the last couple of years, kind of that shift. And there's a lot more sort of wanting to understand what is behind the business? Who is, who's running the business? What are they about? Who are they about and, and why are they doing this? Because if it aligns with their values, that connection is that much tighter, which means people are just a little bit more loyal now. So instead of you know jumping from one brand to another, if you can build that connection in a different way, because the value exchange is, is just so reciprocal, then it just makes sense for people to stay with, with the brands that they truly love. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Israel Diaz. He spent 25 years as a creative professional and business leader and has moved up the ranks to lead some of the most awarded advertising agencies. I want to spend a little bit of time on you now because, you know, as I was doing background research and, you know, words like philosopher, someone that takes their time, someone that's very thoughtful, that uses words that have meaning versus just a splatter. Where did that begin? Because I understand you're the youngest of five children. Your parents immigrated from Philippines, but you really found your sense of being around a chessboard. Yes, I, I grew up in a family of seven. I was the last of five kids. And my next older brother is uh, four and a half years old, five years old, older than me. There's a huge gap. One of my earliest and fondest memories has always been kind of just sitting on the porch. This is way back in the, we're still in the Philippines. I was maybe two, three years old and just watching my brother and my dad play chess. They're just sitting there staring at the board for hours on end and they would make a move and it was just a fascinating thing and I just wondered what was happening and so they eventually exposed me to you know my dad and brother would give me pointers on how to actually play the game and I learned it and the strategy behind it and and just has such an amazing metaphor for life I think there's about 10 to the exponent 120 possible games in chess so you know you're not going to have the same match uh, typically ever so there's always going to be some changes in and around the game. So knowing how to pivot, knowing how to strategize, be offensive and defensive at the same time, kind of have a grand plan, but then fight all these mini battles within. It was just like this, uh, this amazing um, opportunity to really use your brain. The other thing I love about chess is like you don't have to be strong. You don't have to be fast. You don't have to be 
any of that, you just have to, you know, be able to concentrate a little bit and just think about what you want to do. You also talk about in a previous article of being an introvert. I just did a show with Susan Kane and talking about the power of introverts in the sense that it's not the loudest person in the room that often changes society. It's the person that's sitting back and studying society. When did you realize that an introvert wasn't something to be ashamed of, feeling that you were less than and realizing that it gave you a superpower. I actually thought, I was like, oh, I'm too shy. Um, I don't speak uh, enough and, and all that. But yeah, it's just a different way of processing, right? Yeah, growing up again, the last of five kids, what that taught me was a sense of obs- observing people and seeing patterns and seeing what to do, what not to do, right? I love also people watching and, and kind of like guessing what's, what's going to happen with, with others and, you know, what their motivations are, et cetera. So it's just the observance of, of that. That's a skill that I kind of developed is just reading the room, really sensing and reading between the lines, but also really understanding it's almost this empathy of feeling, you know, kind of the energy within the room and, and sensing how people really felt. Growing up in, in, in my career in advertising, when you start getting into any role, a significant role of being, you know, an ACD or a CD, you have to step up more into the, into, into the room. It always kind of freaked me out because it was like, oh man, I got to play, I got to put on a different kind of mask here because the expectation is you have to be abrasive, obnoxious, (laughs) or like really loud person with a POV and, you know, all that sort of stuff. What I found was by being quiet in the room, actually intimidate people in the weirdest way. And I didn't, people will always tell me that after the fact, I'm like, I didn't say a word, but it's just like, I think people were intimidated that you were just sitting there. What's he thinking? So it, kind of a funny uh, turn of events there. I want to just take you back in time because I'm interested, you know, the chess player, Toronto chess champion, so you're getting a little swagger, but you're still considering yourself very introverted in high school, but you become the class president. Typically, the class president wouldn't be the quiet one. Tell me how that chess match unfolded and you turned that to your advantage. It was easy and easy for me to make friends. So I had a lot of friends in many different sort of types of groups. So it wasn't like, you know, you were hanging out with the rockers or the skinheads or, you know, <laughs> all that sort of the preppies. I had a, pretty much a friend everywhere. And so I think for me, I was the guy that everyone kind of liked, but I wasn't the person that would be trying to get the most attention or anything. It was always kind of like, I'll just do my thing. I had my art and I was always doing that. The reputation, I guess, of being a nice guy paid off. (laughs) Uh, I distinctly remember coming into high school and that was actually in grade nine and seeing the it was actually for the SAC, you know, the voting and, and, and kind of the campaigning. And so it was like the grade 12s and 13s um, that were up on stage. And they were, I just remember thinking, man, what a bunch of like boring people. All they do is talk about themselves. And they weren't talking about like, what are they going to do for the students? And what are they going to talk about? You know, what, what are they going to do for the school? It's more sort of like their accomplishments and everything. At that point, I, you know, kind of thought, wouldn't it be funny if I actually ran for school president one of these days? And then <laughs> sure enough, in, in, in grade 12, my best friend, um, Scott Couture, who's actually in, in advertising, he's a creative director, uh, and we went to school to high school together. He egged me on to be like, hey, you should run for president. There's this guy who's going to be running. He's like so obnoxious. <laughs> it was a bit of a joke to see if I could really pull it off. I did a bit of research in terms of, you know, what does it take to actually be on the SAC? 
everyone's assumption was, oh, you had to be like really good at all your studies. You had to be part of the, the athletic council and the arts council and all the other councils. You have to be this Mr. Popular person. And so I read this constitution and it said, it actually, you don't need any qualifications. You just have to have a passion to want to serve, you know, the school. So that was my platform, actually. You know what, guys, I, I, I was just reading the, the student uh, council, what's required, and, and nowhere does it say that you have to be Mr. Popular. So, you know, you guys can, can vote for any Tom, Dick, or Israel. And so everyone laughed at that. <laughs> and so, um, and we actually did have a really great team. And so at age 22 to 28, you think your life calling is going to be architecture. You want to be, and you read a byline in Toronto Life about advertising through uh, Charles Satchi, who was instrumental in getting Margaret Thatcher uh, elected and a number of other breakthrough campaigns. What was that byline and how did you, because that's a massive course correction. I mean, I know they're both creative, but, you know, architecture to advertising is very, very different. I ended up getting a job, actually, an internship job at the, the firm that was one of the firms that were working on the Sky Dome, world's first retractable roof and, and all that. So even just to be in the presence of like a bunch of architects working on that, I thought, okay, I'll, at least I'll pick something up. It was an internship job, you know, running out to Curry's and getting special pens for architects, special rulers, whatever they needed. Um, I do deliveries of blueprints, all that. So it was fun. It was fun to get exposed to the, the hubbub of it. The one thing I picked up though, was like, man, everyone's miserable. <laughs> I'm not, I don't know if this is really what I want to do. And, and so when I was talking with a couple architects about it, they were kind of like, yeah, you know, the, the, the industry is kind of tanking right now. I don't know if this is really such a good thing. And then, you know, I was like, what am I going to do? Then I ran into a, an article. So I was literally just flipping through Toronto life. And there was a byline about this guy who was like this playboy, like, you know, art buyer, uh, he buys art, um, but he also owns this agency. I'm like, what, what is this? So I'm reading about this, this guy named Charles Sachi. Advertising to me wasn't even in the picture at that point. I didn't even know it was an industry. I thought it was just, it, it happened, but it was, I don't know how it happened, maybe Hollywood. It was just interesting to read about this guy who it said in the, in the article, he was 16. He started in the mailroom. By 25, he actually owned the agency. That sounds so glamorous. I want to be part of that because it was just so, seems so fast, right? In terms of like what you can do. And I, I'm like advertising. I love advertising. I'm always kind of fascinated by it. And now this guy who owns like one of the world's sort of most creative agencies, Sachi and Sachi, I'm just like, man, that's amazing. I want to do that. I got really fascinated by it. I started buying every book I could ever see about advertising because there wasn't really formal schools yet back then. I invested in buying a one show book and you know, I'd never heard of the one show. I was at Curry's buying some pens for, <laughs> for one of the architects and I, you know, the book section, there was a thing called the one show and I started flipping through it. It just fascinated me. It was like the best of all the advertising. I'm just like, holy, I, this is, I love this. I invested in that. It was like $125 back then. And I was like, that's a lot of money. And I studied that thing like night and day. And I just literally analyzed how they constructed the ads, what made it good. You know, even how copy and, and the art direction worked together, how there was kind of that X where you, you know, you only fill in a little bit and then you have to fill it in with your mind, like the rest of it. I was like, that's so cool how they did that. And it was, you know, during that time, it was like lots of long copy ads beautifully crafted, really well art directed, 
that's how I taught myself. I actually just, for the first little while, I was just like deconstructing advertising of someone else's and then seeing how it worked and what made it good. So I enrolled in the, um, the night course and uh, that was taught by an instructor named Terry Isles and uh, you know, a total legend in, in Toronto. I thought I was going to be a copywriter. All the books I read was like cab drivers who got into advertising and they just had, you know, a couple of headlines on a napkin and they showed it to some creative director and they got a job. I'm like, okay, that's what I want to do. <laughs> I just want to copyright because that's probably the easiest way because to, to be an art director was formal sort of design training and all that sort of stuff. I'm like, no, that's too long. And then was doing some of the schoolwork, I was laying everything out right properly and everything like that and then terry's terry isles structure said you have to be an art director you can, <laughs> you're doing these so well from from that standpoint and and design to me came naturally so i didn't really have to try at it i don't know why i think it was because i was dissecting so many types of advertising and design that i was just melding it all together and creating my own sort of layouts that were interesting and different uh, that he took notice of it and he's like okay, this is all different. This is, you're now melding design in art direction almost. I, mean, I didn't know, even know what that meant because it was like putting logos where they weren't supposed to be and all sorts of stuff and putting headlines in different places where typically like the David Ogilvy thing is like headline, <laughs> visual, you know, copy down the bottom, bottom right-hand corner logo kind of structure. Is that where you came up with this concept? Because I mean, for again, people not in the industry, you are the best of the best. You're one of the, the great ad people in Canada. And, but you came to this conclusion, everyone is creative. There's nothing truly original. Creativity, in fact, is the art of rearranging the known into a new, different, original combination. Sounds like you're, that's where you got, you know, Kat, is where you started messing things up. I mean, that's Ogilvy's formula and you're not following it. So is that kind of where you felt that would be make your, you'd make your mark? Is it, again, the the introvert versus the extrovert, offense, defense, and chessboard, that it was just sort of, I'm going to go at this world a little different? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, I never really understood why there were such rules like that. And I mean, you can exercise your creativity and how you rearrange it. Even a rearrangement of an art of a layout is was considered like, whoa, that's different. It's like, well, no, I'll, I, I'm just leading your eye differently so that you can actually follow what we're communicating. So I was looking at it from a very logical standpoint in terms of like hierarchy and all that sort of stuff, all the design principles, but I just didn't know I was doing it. I knew also everyone coming out of that school was going to have the same portfolio because everyone was just putting their you know schoolwork in it and that's what they were going to be showing around i'm like i'm not going to do that i'm also not going to include just the typical classwork so i'm going to do extra stuff and then screw it up so that it does look different so it'll stand out so i had that in my head even going uh into the marketplace before i started showing my book and terry Owls actually told me before i even finished that year he said you're ready like look at your book it's, it's start knocking i'm like really i i I haven't even taken the four-year course. And it's like, just start knocking. And he gave me a couple of names. So I started knocking on some doors. Leo Burnett was the, was the first agency I dropped off my portfolio at. Got a call back immediately. And I thought, no, it can't be that easy. <laughs> um, they didn't have a position at the time, uh, but they wanted to keep in touch. And then it took me about three solid months of just knocking to actually land my first gig. And everyone commented on how different my book was. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. We return advertising guru Israel Diaz goes from knocking on doors to career success to actually reinventing the advertising wheel entirely. 
Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. Ideas matter. Ideas are the oxygen of human endeavor. They breathe life into how we work, live, and play. Ideas let us create and innovate and overcome complex and often challenging circumstances. Big or small, revolutionary or evolutionary, almost every positive step forward begins with a good idea. So bring your ideas to RBC because they matter, and they'll bring theirs because you matter. Ideas happen at RBC. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Israel Diaz. He spent 25 years as a creative professional and business leader and has moved up the ranks to lead some of the most awarded advertising agencies. How often in your early stages of your career did you bring in this revolutionary thinking that go, that's great, but this is the way we do things? Like, did you have to fight that a lot in your early part or did you just have such conviction that you said, no, let's try it? I was kind of always had that, I guess, that underdog mentality, you know, kind of like, why not? Why? What's the worst that can happen? Why can't we try it? And if not, we can always revert back at the at the worst. We've moved it forward in some capacity. Right. Or at least challenged it. So that always was kind of in me in terms of that challenger mentality. And plus, again, I always, uh, you know, not having gone to formal school on this uh, stuff and now you're in an agency. I, I kind of had a little bit of, um, what's that syndrome? The uh, imposter syndrome. Yeah, you know, for sure. Just like, why not? We're, we're, we're here. Let's just just keep pushing it and, uh, you know, challenging and just questioning. You know, you asked a question about creativity or, or uh, nothing, nothing's uh, original. Everything is just a rearrangement. And, and that's true because the, the one thing I also noticed was there was this angst in a lot of, you know, the creative department was like, I have to come up with something original, totally, totally original. It's like, yeah, just have to take a step back. It's like, there's nothing truly original. It's like, well, what we're doing is just taking bits and pieces of some knowledge that we have and, 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 and reconstructing it and then re presenting it in a very different in surprising way. So that's our craft. Our craft is to actually sell, but we just need to do this in a, in a way that, you know, we'll, we'll capture that attention and, and we're communicating it properly to uh, on behalf of our clients. So talk to me about, I mean, your, your career, and we, we haven't got time this interview, but I'll just let everybody know, you, sh- you, you shoot the lights out, even a good buddy of mine, Joe Jackman, you know, wow, what a combination of you two. But uh, through all of this, you have this desire to do your own thing, and, and it, which is Sunday and night. So what is that all about? And why do you think you now have, this is your canvas, and if so, here's what are you going to paint on it that makes you different? Yeah, so Sunday night, I opened this up in like 2017, and it has been this work in progress evolution. I wanted, a, a like you said, a canvas to actually start playing a little bit deeper into what I truly loved, which was to really understand um, creativity in the creative process, how to actually get uh, the best out of people creating, you know, their work, but also then uh, affect clients who they're then therefore can actually create their biggest dent in the universe kind of thing. So it's kind of this um, linear sort of progression. Sunday night was actually initially conceived um, to solve a very specific problem. And that was to how do we actually bring the right people into the room and get to the best ideas as quickly as possible 
and in the shortest amount of time. And so Sunday night, then it was aptly named because it was, you know, we would create our solutioning basically on Sunday. So 8 a.m. to midnight is a Sunday and a night. And so that's 16 hours. And so we, we created this environment where we can actually have, you know, three teams of five and different people in the mix we're talking. We're not talking like your typical creative teams. This is an opportunity to actually now tap different brains into the mix. So doctors, engineers, mothers, depending on what the, the client uh, need is and what we're trying to solve for, we would actually construct the different types of people to actually solve uh, the problems. The thing we created also was stripping away any anything that would hinder creativity. So the first thing was strip everyone of their identity. So you, you come in with a code name so that you're not actually, you know, it's not about like showboating. It's like, oh, I'm the CEO of this during the daytime and blah, 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 blah. It's like, it doesn't really matter. Park that. We're, you're here to, we're actually here to tap your brain. You're now with a bunch of superstars to actually cra uh, craft, um, you know, this problem and tackle it. And you have 16 hours. We also started really being conscious of the environment, the lighting, the sound, the food, everything that was actually um, energetically affecting people to optimize their energy to sustain 16 hours. So we would also have meditation and yoga breaks, uh, et cetera. So lots of playtime versus just kind of like being stuck in a boardroom, fluorescent lighting and a whiteboard. It's, it's actually, we, on a Sunday, we can actually rent really interesting venues as well. So we would hold these in, in really interesting places so that it actually helps with that creative process. And, you know, bringing these people in also, they didn't know what they were walking into. So they were walking in cold and that heightens your creative juices already because there's, there's a bit of discomfort. So we were using a lot of brain neurological um, science behind it to actually amplify the creative process. We would typically get about three years worth of work um, in 16 hours. So that's amazing for the clients because they get all that work. The clients are in with the team so they can see it being built. They're not part of the teams because it changes the, the dynamic, but they see their sort of ideas being built out, which is interesting. And plus, you know, they get to help pick the teams that are actually working on their, on their project. So Sunday allowed us to do that because it was kind of this contained sort of like place um, and time. Whatever people did nine to five, Monday to Friday, it didn't really matter. We'd, we'd bring them in. From that, we really understood the power of the brief. The quality of the work is so associated with the quality of brief going in, as, as you know. And so the tighter, the better. That allowed us to actually go deeper into, well, what makes the best brief? That got us into more understanding about the purpose behind kind of what, what's happening. And then, so it's not just about the, the brand itself that we're working on. We're really understanding the business aspect of it so that whatever we came up with was, was neutral. So it wasn't just like advertising per se. It's actually about the business. Once we understood the business, we really had to understand the people running the business in order to stitch that properly. So we got us... It got us going deeper and deeper backwards into taking this first principles approach to it and really understanding the people behind the business, which affects the business, which affects the brand. When you have that chain, then you can, you can see how you can actually correlate everything and, and make everything sync up properly. That just got deeper and deeper. So the last couple of years has been going down that path of understanding the who 
behind the why of the business and then the what of the of the the business, which is the brand. So now we're covering kind of the entire base. So that's fascinated me more because I love the people aspect of things and really understanding the people behind the business as well. What is their higher purpose? What is their purpose? Why, why did they start this business in the first place? So we work with a lot of founders, but we also work with a lot of legacy brands. But, you know, legacy brands, I think sometimes forget the founder who founded that company had a purpose in mind for the business. And so going back to that foundational DNA is actually very, very important because it's just a retranslation of that into current times, right? So going back to the actual purpose of the business and why it was actually started is fundamental. We've also now developed tools to really understand the who behind the business. So we've gone deeper and deeper that way, which now opens up other doors because it's funny when we actually do our, our sessions with, with some of our clients, they always say, oh, it feels like we're in therapy. <laughs> and because we're asking like all these questions, but it's all fundamental to where do they find their, their passion as a, as a child? You know, this isn't to go back and readdress any traumas or anything. That's really just understanding what are the triggers when you were a child that actually made you passionate about this? Understanding how purpose actually comes about. And so we now have a formula in terms of finding out purpose, passions, kind of in a really simple way that is almost, it's formulaic, but it's actually all based in universal human truths. We've just taken the principles of that from science and philosophy um, to actually, and economics to actually construct a way to think about how we actually define um, someone's purpose and passions, pursuits and their, their potential not only for their business, businesses and brands, but really for themselves as well. So it's this nice sort of correlation um, where, you know, the people running the business can really now make that connection. And so consumers who are now interacting with the brand can feel all of that, um, you know, coming out because you can't fake that stuff, right? When we, you can align um, the purpose and passions of a founder to their business, and then the brand coming out of it, uh, the expression of that. And so it comes off very, very authentic. And, and um, we, find, we found that um, that's actually very powerful when connecting with the audience that you really want to. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Israel Diaz. Are you ever going to distill it down so a small business owner that might not have the ability to afford this or be part of it can at least apply some of these principles of, you know, your passion, your purpose, your pursuit, your potential. I mean, is it, you know, it would never be the Sunday and at night adventure or quest that you're on, but there's certain elements of that that I have to be these universal truths that can be applied to any business, frankly, probably any individual. Absolutely. And actually, the Sunday swarm that I actually described to you is an offering. It's not a mandatory. It's only um, if you want to pursue it that way, like as you know, express it that way. But the upfront part is actually very much a module. So any business owner, we work with individuals, we work with founders, we work with teams and full-on organizations to actually... Um, work with them one-on-one, but also as a team. But we have worked with individuals personally, 
just to do their, we call it a magnum opus. We actually bring it all together into um, a framework that we have constructed to actually collect all this information in a really simple way. So again, it's a one pager, but it gives you everything you ever possibly could need. It's kind of like your brief for yourself and for your life. And so when you can apply that to a team, everyone's got their own sort of mini magnum opuses, but collectively now we can find the commonalities, which will then express as the, as the business um, and the brand, right? Part of this um, journey is to really codify this even more so, make it really simple to understand and apply um, so that it is affordable for whoever. Because again, the big five questions we all face is who am I? Why am I here? What am I doing? You know, it's all the things that we all go through and ask. I'm finding that this is actually a really powerful thing to actually offer out there uh, regardless. So it's you don't have to have a major business to actually use this stuff. So talk to me about, you know, talk about commonality. We share somebody in common, Erica M. I've known her for years. Uh, she's recently on Chatter That Matters. And together you're working on this inside out initiative. And it really is a reflection also of you spending your life giving back to young people, doing a lot of mentorship and stuff. So tell me a little bit about Inside Out. So Erica and I were introduced a couple of years ago. And, uh, you know, obviously, like she's a well-known figure in Canada. And uh, I was like, wow, okay, sure, let's meet. Uh, and so we got chatting and um, we both kind of expressed our passion for, for, for youth in terms of the next generation. You know, we got talking about like how we approached everything in terms of going back to the, to the who and understanding that and, and, and having our tools to actually do that. We always actually had thought, now that we are applying this to businesses and brands, could we actually apply the same methodology to youth? And so Inside Out was born as a result of that. It's a version of what we offer to quote unquote paying clients. This is a, a version that will help um, the youth pay attention to all the things that really light them up, i.e. their passions, help them find their purpose so they can now figure out what are they going to do now in terms of uh, university? Do I go do a side hustle? Do I travel? At least go down the path 85% of the way so at least they're pointed in the right direction. Because we've all gone, you know, we've, we've seen this with friends and family and even us, I'm sure. We get down a path, we're going down university, then we get into a, a career, we're in probably not happy about then we're 28 and we start questioning everything it's like what am i doing here what should i you know should i start a new gig it starts to really gnaw you so what we wanted to do was actually give the tool for youth to actually make those decisions kind of we call it me powering so it's actually me powering them to actually um, listen to themselves and to li listen to what really truly calls them follow that because that's also not taught in school, is to really follow what lights you up. I think to have a truly fulfilling and meaningful life, the quicker you're going down the, the path of your passions and your purpose, the more that is you know, going to show up in more impact down the road. We began this interview talking a little bit about, you know, I introduced you as somebody that meditates and philosophy. And it's interesting, you talk about codifying a process, this left brain and right brain collision you seem to live in the middle of, your, this cortex that you exist. Give me a sense of what your morning's like. Because when we talked earlier, I was quite impressed that you've got a, 
a certain routine that allows you to really free up this incredible energy that you have. So give the listeners a, what's a day in the life like of Israel? I started to realize I wasn't really making time for myself uh, in terms of didn't have the time because it was all about work and, you know, going home, family, et cetera, but never had time for me. Um, and so it, that's when my switch happened was when I said, okay, well, I, the only time I, I, I can do this is in the morning. So I got to create that space in the morning. So, you know, I started working out at six, six o'clock in the morning back then. And, you know, I, I remember the first week I did that. It was such a shock to my body. I puked like walking home from the gym. And so over the years, I've, I've just started realizing how amazing that sort of morning time was and, you know, creating that space before you actually got into work mode. Over the years, I actually just started um, making it more and more inching it up by 15 minutes at a time kind of thing. Currently, I'm actually waking up at four o'clock in the morning. So I have an extra four hours just for myself. And so I, I do essentially, I follow uh, mind, body, soul in terms of, you know, like taking care of each, each one of those. Doing some soul work, i.e. meditation, listening to myself and, and, and kind of my energy, quieting my mind. The mind stuff is, is essentially like listening to a podcast, listening to some content that is going to fuel me versus kind of distract me. I'm choosing not to put my attention on anything that's not going to, to actually help me in my life. And then, you know, I, I do a workout like either yoga or go to the gym. That just sets my entire day. By the time I get to work, I'm just like, okay, I'm in work mode. But I've essentially created, carved out about four hours for myself. So when you multiply that by seven, that's 28 hours in a week that you kind of gain for yourself, right? So that's just a choice I made for myself and it, it works for me. Israel, I always end my podcast with my three takeaways. And it's interesting enough how this word attention, which I began with, really flowed through our entire conversation. And the first lesson was how you paid attention as a two-year-old to your brother and your father playing chess and how much you wanted to be part of that. How you really started to grow in your ability to understand the different patterns on the board. It was almost like that initial fusion of creativity and process was happening to you. I love the second lesson where you say, when you tell people to pay attention, you're asking them to make an investment in you. And what a great lesson for the listeners is if they're going to make an investment, you better be worthy. You better have done your homework. You better understand who they are, where they're heading in life, how you can make a difference. But the thing that I really got away from it, something I've never really thought about, is that before you can even have the honor of doing that, you better know who you are. And I love when you talked about the sense of, you know, the who, why, or what, you know, understanding your passion, your purpose, your, your pursuit, your potential. And I think all of this coming together really is, as Susan Cain says, the gift of an introvert that spends their time observing and in your case, which I think is the great eye-opener, not only observing the world, but observing who you are. And I think for all of that is why you've mattered so much. And not only to, in terms of the brands you've built with your creativity, but I have to believe now you're, you know, what you're doing with Sunday and night in terms of people walking away, maybe having a little creative therapy. And I think that's kind of a, a great thing. So I really appreciate you coming on Chatter That Matters. It's just been a delightful conversation. I'm so glad I got to know you after being such a fan for all these years. Oh, thank you, Tony. Such a pleasure. Thank you. If you're a fan of Chatter That Matters, you know that my go-to person for anything involving strategy, branding, and design 
is Georgia Belinsky. She's the Senior Director of Brand Strategy at RBC. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Tony. Thanks so much for having me again. You're the epicenter strategy at RBC, and this world is moving so fast. And it's almost like you either have to make things happen or you end up just watching and wondering what happened. There doesn't seem to be any sort of middle ground. It's high gear. And so what are you doing as an individual to keep up? Because Israel talks about that he's trying to carve out his personal time in the morning to read, to meditate, to exercise. Are you doing anything like that just to kind of keep in balance who you are versus how important the work you do day in, day out? 100%. It's a great question, Tony. And you know what? I've never loved the phrase keeping up because it suggests you're behind. (laughs) You know, chasing something that's out in front of you. Instead, I prefer to approach each week you know, with this idea of setting my pace. You are your own best leader. What do you do to set your pace each week, month, year? Acknowledge that pace is going to shift depending on what's going on around you. Are you actively managing the rhythm that you're in? And when I find I can get into that rhythm, actively and consciously think about pace, it really helps me stay in control of the week and and meet the demands that I have for myself that others have of me. Um, And honestly, it's really dramatically transformed how I view the inflow and outflow of energy required of me. You know, you're young, but you're an up and coming star at RBC. And I have to believe a lot of people reach out in the middle of this wonderfully structured week and say, hey, Georgia, I could use your brain on this or I could do that. What advice can you give to my listeners to make sure that you put yourself first, even in situations where somebody much more senior than you is knocking at your door saying, I need help. Plan for those spontaneous moments. If you can believe it, spontaneity can be built in. You have to have time where you're free and accessible and can be reached and respond to the the daily needs that come up that you just can't predict. It's so common. And so building in that non-negotiable time where you're planning, but also building the time to be seen, be available and respond to whatever the question of the day is, is absolutely critical. So Israel also talks about the fact that there's no business needs, only human needs. And his rationale is, is, is we're getting very focused on data and data points, but ultimately a business is all made up of humans. We market to humans, we have humans helping us do the work. Do you agree with it that we should really always focus first and foremost on the people that matter to us versus just the bottom line that matters or hitting this week's objectives? I absolutely fundamentally agree with this point of view. I think it's one of the founding truths of the world, not just of businesses, but of all systems, government, philanthropic, educational, healthcare, etc. These are all driven and, and serving people at the core of what they do. And the funny thing is that mystifies me is it's also the thing so easily forgotten, right? When we're designing for people and systems and rushing to get things out the door, you know, it's a constant reminder to say, there are people at the center of this. This is why we do what we do at the end of the day. So let's build on that concept of people because another point that Israel meant was a sense of diversity of thought. And he made a point saying it wasn't just about, you know, having ethnicity represented and gender and age represented. It was just people from different walks of life contributing to solving a problem. He has these sort of Sunday jams where they really try to solve big problems in one day with this eclectic group. Is that something that you do at RBC in terms of helping you 
determine what is the right strategy going forward? You know, as advertisers, we're storytellers. And in aggregate, we've got great power to shape the media landscape and by way of that, perceptions of generations. And so we have to think deeply and consciously about this through every decision that we make. And, and for me, what interests me in the inclusion and diversity conversation is not just, to your point, representation, but being more mindful about diversifying the archetypes that drive our storytelling. So not just who we're showing, but what are they doing? What role are they in? How do they operate? What traits and behaviors define them? This is where storytelling gets richer, and I think it's where we can collectively do a better job from an advertising and media perspective of bringing more and different archetypes to the table. Georgia, I love chatting with you. I think you're so articulate. I hope you come back and join me again on Chatter That Matters. Thanks so much for having me, Tony. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.